Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 38, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs, where we will be looking at chapters 73 and 74 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of legendary accretion. For those of you who are new here, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. Please note, we are very, very close to the end of this book, and you probably should listen from the beginning, which would be on episode one. We will be revisiting the contents of episode one at the end of this book, because why not? We've gotten better. To continue our explanation, we will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemus of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. We will then wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Now, I would challenge you to also read your part very, very fast. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Books. Though, Pat, if you are listening, if you'd like to be affiliated with us, we would not uh, say no to that. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novels and short story by Galoob. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, my Micro Machines Man impersonation is lacking. <laughs> okay, but still go faster than you normally do. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Da Books. Though, Pat, if you're listening and you'd like to be affiliated with us, operators are standing by. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you are one of the weird folks who doesn't mind having crucial plot points and details revealed from the future, as if we were time travelers revealing your fortunes. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community, it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, but that said, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. Congratulations, now you can breathe. Well, now I gotta do a 45 second recap. Not my fault. Maybe it is. It kinda is. Why is it kinda is? You're trying to get me out of my mojo for reading things fast. No, no, I'm just trying to get you to read things fast. I wanted you to match me. Meh. And then I just felt incredibly old when I realized that there are going to be people listening to this podcast who have no idea who the Micro Machines man is. Or what Micro Machines are. I'm aging in real time. But now I'm definitely going to keep that little flub up in. I would normally have just deleted it, but this is funnier. Okay, I'll accept that. So, in my ongoing effort to avoid cherries, don't even reach for the cherry ripe. Put the cherry ripe down. Stop that. Stop that. No. Bad. Bad phoenix. No. Put it away. Put it away. Put it away. That stuff is probably like way expired by this point. It expired in February. Yeah. No. Bad. That's older than the pandemic. No, it is not. <laughs> it's older than quarantine. Accurate. But that's because the leaders of this country are idiots. Yeah. Either way, it's way out of date and I'm not eating that. So, do you have a timer ready? Do I ever have a timer ready? Yeah. I do? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't believe you. I feel like I never have a timer ready and sometimes I use your phone. Regardless, now I have a timer ready. You ready? Yep. In three, two, one, go. 
Quoth and Dana make friends with a local, who shares with them a meal, while they imitate his vocals to make his knowledge be revealed. The swineherd gifts them with lore and the flesh of a pig, in exchange for their store of some brand for him to swig. It seems Moffin's great pride led him to foolishly unearth something from an old hill fort's insides that spoke of the Chandrian's birth. After reaching the Waystone's K&D camp for the night, when they hear a sound deep in their bones, and behold a furious blue light, a great behemoth appears, and it's not because of an emptied flagon, for it's not who they'd feared, but behold, a dragon. 33.20 seconds. No cherries for me. Put the cherry ripe away. It is away. It lives in this room. For this week's theme, we chose legendary accretion. So legendary accretion is the process by which mundane historical events take on a tinge of the fantastical. It's where someone's sword goes from being really well made to being mystically made to being outright magical. Probably the best explanation for it. So in this case, there are a few things that we can look at specifically through that lens. One, the Chandrian. Two, Barrow Hill. Three, the dragon. But we can also kind of look at our main characters that way. And a little bit, we can look at the swineherd and Foth's initial reaction to the feral hog. The first thing he thinks when he hears the hog snuffling about is, it's a wild boar. <laughs> and kind of in that same vein, if you think about why we named this episode <laughs> 30 to 50 feral hogs, <laughs> that meme kind of has a little bit of legendary accretion to it. Yeah, I mean, your kids will be playing outside, and then five minutes later, they will be suddenly swarmed with 30 to 50 feral hogs. <laughs> that is such a dumb thing to have said. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It really is. All right, well, let's get into the story proper. We start off with something that I can kind of almost feel. That feeling of your feet were dangling in a river or a creek or whatever. And then you look at what shoes you have to put back on. And they are not only boots, but they do require socks. Yeah, there's nothing worse than putting on socks while your feet are still wet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They never fit just right and they're deeply uncomfortable and yeah. And chances are you have sand in your toes. It's gross. And so we hear our feral hog. Both immediately forgets to put on his other shoe and just leaps into like some sort of fighting crouch. With the tiniest little folding knife. So even then, like it has no structure. It will just fold. <laughs> yeah, it's something that's useful as a utility he says he can't even cut through an apple on his first try with the thing. It's very limited utility, but it's not meant to be a weapon. <laughs> so it kind of reminds me of my first pocket knife. When I was, goodness, I, I was, I think, in fifth grade. So I would have been 10. I was in Girl Scouts, and we were going to be spending a couple of days at this kind of cool campsite with cabins and things. 
And so our Girl Scout troop divided into three different groups. One was cooking, one was like ropes and knots, and one was knives. And no, I don't know why they decided this, but apparently they decided that I should be the head of the knife group. Phoenix of the Knife Clan. (laughs) And I had the crappiest little keychain knife because my overprotective, um, we'll call her parent, decided that I wasn't responsible enough to have a real, maybe three inch long little pocket knife. So instead I had this like inch and a half long, (laughs) terrible Swiss Army knife that had like a fingernail pick in it. (laughs) And again, I was the head of the knife group. I was the 10-year-old in charge of making sure that the other 10-year-olds did not cut their fingers. And so this wasn't me. And also, for some reason, we didn't group people in the cabins by what group they were in. We got to choose our own. So I stayed with my friend who was like, I think the head of the rope group. And while I, the 10-year-old in charge of the other 10-year-olds with knives, was in my own cabin, another 10-year-old with a knife, (laughs) let one of the people I think in the cooking group borrow it. And then she had to go to the hospital for stitches. Good job. This is what I remember from Girl Scouts. (laughs) Yeah, I remember my first pocket knife was something that came with also a fingernail clipper. And yeah, it was about that size. You were maybe going to be more a danger to yourself than anyone else. Especially considering that part of the knife activities for these little pocket knives, we had to sharpen them. (laughs) And if you think about it, like a trip of maybe three or four days, we sharpened them like every day. I mean, what else are you going to do with knives? Whittle? Eh? Guess what we didn't do after the poor kid went off to the hospital? Play with knives. I wonder why. (laughs) This whole thing sounds poorly conceived on multiple levels. The other thing I remember from that camping trip was making scrambled eggs kind of like sous vide, except in Ziploc bags. And mind you, so Ziploc bags, I don't know if they do anymore, but they used to have a little coating in them. And so the coating from the inside of the Ziploc bags got all over the eggs and it was disgusting. I hated him. Mmm, nothing like some good old fashioned BPA to really give it some flavor. It had a flavor. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Yay for the cooking group. All right, now that we've gone down the memory hole, let's go ahead and continue. So the feral hog was not a feral hog. It's not a boar. It's a little snuffling domesticated sow. That all being said, pigs are big. Most of them. Really reminds me of this great little uh, clip about the moment a woman realizes that her relationship with her boyfriend is not what she had thought it would be. She's at this little B&B with her boyfriend and he's got this faraway look in his eyes And then she asks him, what are you thinking? And instead of something about, oh, our future together, or just how lovely you are, or what are we going to do tonight? 
Instead, his response is, Sometimes pigs are much bigger than you might expect. I wouldn't saw one big enough to ride on. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just have this look of utter heartbreak <laughs> as she realizes that the inner life of her boyfriend maybe isn't as rich as she had hoped. So every once in a while when I look over at you and go, what are you thinking about? My answer is oftentimes, pigs are much bigger than you might expect. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, regardless, Denna almost gets this, oh, but she's cute kind of thing going on. And she looks over at Quoth and says, it's every girl's dream to be rescued from somebody's pet pig. <laughs> and then she goes on to school him on the fact that he is holding his knife wrong. Yeah, his uh, white knighting is rather ineffectual here. And this is just the first in a bunch of different times throughout these chapters that Kvoth is like, you know, she's smarter than me. I'm going to pretend I don't know that, because otherwise I might be upset. Male fragility. It's one hell of a drug. Though, throughout this whole time, it's kind of cute. Yeah, it's fairly benign in this case. This whole two chapters is probably my favorite time between the two of them. Starting kind of with last week with them dangling their feet in the water and everything. This is legitimately cute. And I want to wrap them both up in the stupid blanket. There is a little bit of sweet summer child. <laughs> Enjoy this while you can. God world. We will try our best not to be curmudgeons about this. They have a lot of cute banter, and then they hear, peg, 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 peg. <laughs> Trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Or pig. As the case may be. So, the first, I don't know how many times I consumed this book, I listened to it on audiobook, and Nick Podell does a great peg, 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 peg. It's clearly fun to a point, but then you realize, first of all, even though there are other characters with heavy accents, the swineherd is the only one who is actually phonetically written with a thick accent. Oh my goodness, it was so much easier to understand this whole part of this chapter on audiobook. I also note, as time goes on, that accent seems to diminish in the writing, and Quoth hand waves this away as getting more used to it. I also suspect that this is Quoth saying to Chronicler and Bast as he's telling the story, I don't have the energy to go into mimicking this accent more than I really have to. You get the point, he had a thick accent. And this is also, I think, Patrick Rothfuss telling the readers that, okay, look, you get the point, he's got an accent, and I'm kind of sick of writing everything with it. <laughs> <laughs> what I also really enjoy is that we get this little sentence after the swineherd has left where Kvoth says, damn, I'm going to take a whole span of days getting rid of that accent. And then he never speaks in it for the rest of the book. Granted, he has the benefit of being the narrator, so he doesn't have to talk about it if he doesn't want to. So I don't think he wants to. <laughs> I think he doesn't want to be stuck speaking with it for another span of days in real life. In coat life. <laughs> so we have a whole couple pages of Oitot, 
I heard something, somewhat, somewhat. Dan, Tay, water, always. Yeah, so much better when I am not the one reading it. Yeah, and it's sort of a bastardized scouse, sounds like. I don't know. <laughs> I don't read phonetically very well in the first place, and oh my goodness. But eventually, we find out his name, and it is unintelligible in the writing. Congratulations to Nick Bedell for actually having read this name. I cannot repeat it. If you can repeat it. Nope. <laughs> cool. His name is Shem. It's a lot easier. And we get this whole part of this chapter where Foth is trying to pump Shem for information. And while Shem has no idea about the tragedy that happened the night before at the wedding, he does know of the Mothins. Now, before we get too far into how that conversation went, I note that Denna introduces herself as Danae or something close to that. I'm wondering if Denna is naming herself to get a new personality. I mean, it seems like an undercover identity, if nothing else. She does seem to take on different characteristics. Denna is different from Danae as a character. And it's at the same time similar enough that she could know to answer to it. At the same time, Coat is different than Kvoth. And I wonder if he learned this little trick from her. Possibly, yeah. It would make sense. Even as he's got stage training, the art of building a new wholesale identity typically requires a little more picking of truths as opposed to fabrication of lies. He says, she made such a picture of awkward bashfulness that I was almost fooled myself. It's like she's specifically turning into a different person. I think that's kind of neat, and I think... It would be really cool if that was played up a little bit more as we go along. And it certainly does raise the question, who is Denna Prime? Because it's probably not Denna. And Kvoth probably should be wondering that himself. But he's young and stupid, so... Eh. I think it's only natural that he would want the person that he's interacting with to be the genuine article. I'm not sure that that's stupid. It's natural to want that. It's a whole other thing to believe that. I just think that, again, he doesn't really have the intellectual curiosity about her. Yeah, he doesn't really ask where she learned this trick. He doesn't ask her anything about how she knows any of the stuff that he is like, I'm impressed. I shouldn't be impressed with a girl. There's a sentence here that kind of exemplifies the entirety of how I am feeling regarding not only just confinement because of the pandemic, but kind of the solitary life that I've been living since quitting my last job. Quoth says, people in solitary jobs like shepherds or swineherds tend to either enjoy their own company or be starved for conversation. And up to a point, I have no problem with not interacting with people face to face. I do enough via the internet, chats, Twitter, reaching out to some friends, you know, with Zoom and everything and, and calling your family. But I am starved for real human interaction at this point. Oh my god. Yeah, I really feel you there. I mean, yeah, I have daily conference calls and things like that, but 
it's nowhere near what I was used to in the before times. Moving on, Foth cleverly uses the bottle of brand to get Shem to open up even more. But there's a lot of talk about the wind in a lot of the conversations that they have. Shem essentially says, I don't drink, but when I am thirsty or when the wind's blowing. So in other words, he only drinks on days ending in Y. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But all that being said, there's a lot of things about the wind if you know to look for them. We go along. Shem kills a pig or piglet. Luau for one. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I noticed about all of this is the speed with which this seems to be montaged going from live piglet to veal bacon he makes it sound like this was just the matter of you know maybe an hour's work but like you think about how long it takes to cook something to a safe temperature i'm just amazed by the passage of time here goes from being your pet little teacup pig to a full-blown luau that's fully cooked and crackling and good. Will? Yes? Teacup pigs are cute. And delicious. I don't want to think about the little teacup pigs over a spit. But... Okay, fine. 30 to 50 teacup feral hogs. That's not better? No teacup pigs were harmed in the making of their lunch. Okay, so it went from a small baby but ugly piglet that was alive to a fully cooked luau that was not very aesthetically appealing. But I'm just saying that it would probably take a fair amount of time to get all of this stuff prepared and all of the things that would happen for this. It would take longer than an hour. Why are you fixated on this? It just, it bugged me. I don't know why. I'm broken. (laughs) So that we acknowledge this, this little tangent was unnecessary, right? Absolutely. All tangents are unnecessary. No, not all of them. Some of them matter. Like my Girl Scout story. That mattered. (laughs) Okay, fine. I'll let you have it. (laughs) That's okay. You tortured me with teacup pigs and I am now mad at you. But I knew it was going to happen. So... From Shem, they find out that Mothin has, in his hubris, built his home with what seem to be barrow stones, and that the little township that they thought of as Bororill was actually Barrow Hill. Township? Really? It's one house. (laughs) True. And apparently that thick accent mattered, because without it, both never would have heard Barrow Hill properly. It's also something that he's able to use to try and gain the swineherd's trust. So anyway, we find out that Mothin decided that he's going to build a farmhouse in defiance of God himself. It's curious that everyone thinks of it as barrows when, as Quoth later points out, Barrows aren't really a thing that happen in this part of the world. There's something that you would see maybe in Ventus, which is much further south. And 
you know, it's something that might appear in stories, but no one would have even seen a barrow. So I would like to also point out, though, if they haven't seen a barrow and only heard vague descriptions, they might think it is. Hence legendary accretion. Absolutely. When Shem says, but when you're digging the foundation and you find bones and such and you don't stop, that's a whole new type of stupid. At the very least, even if it's not a barrow, it is a burial ground. Or at least it seems like it might be. And it's kind of like those stories of an ancient burial ground. I don't even want to live within sight of a graveyard, much less on top of one. Yeah, there is definitely something taboo about that. And no one likes the idea of disrespecting the dead, whether they're one's own or someone else's. Apparently not no one. The Mothans didn't care. Which is meant to paint them in a negative light. Now, granted, it's also possible that Shem himself is projecting a little bit here. He doesn't seem to have a high opinion of them in the first place. He says, would you build your house with barrow stones? I don't think they're barrow stones, but I do think they are gray stones. Which means maybe this hill fort that Quoth later assumes is hidden under all of the rock that they are now standing on, was made out of graystones, which are also waystones, which are kind of pointing their way to the fey. It's possible that there may have been a hill fort here, which, as he points out, the lay of the land would naturally work for it. It also is possible that there may have once been graystones at the top of this hill, and the early inhabitants then built a hill fort around it to protect them. Maybe. All of these things are possible. Hill forts were pretty popular in early Iron Age cultures as a way to easily fortify a high ground area and cement a tactical advantage over invading troops. So it's a logical historical surmisal, and I do think there may also have been waystones there. Then he finds this little stone room all sealed up tight. Joy, if somebody on this planet finds one of those this year, every single geek that I know would be like, don't open it. Don't open it. Don't open it. 2020 is a trash fire. Stop. Don't open it. Do you want mummies? This is how you get mummies. <laughs> Do you want creatures of the deep? This is how you get creatures of the deep. This is that whole meddling and things best left unmeddled with. <laughs> Do you want a Balrog? <laughs> This is how you get Balrogs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, apparently they were also gossiping a little bit about what they'd found. And somehow it made its way back to Shem that he knew something about it too. Which means it got all over the town of Traven. Everywhere. This man who doesn't talk to people very often found out about this. Which means... The Mothins just didn't shut up about it. We later actually find out what it is because a young girl from the town finds Quoth at the university and talks about what she saw because she actually saw this thing and lived to tell about it. And it's some form of pottery, which very likely depicts the Chandrian in some form or fashion. Full disclosure, it has been a year at this point since the last time that we listened through all the books 
because we prepped for this whole thing a year ago. And then uh, Shem mentions that there are definitely things in the woods that have been making blue flame. And Quoth, who is desperately curious, tries to goad him into telling more by making him angry, telling him not to tell fairy stories. Now it's interesting that Shem's response to this is, Oi ain't no lion rue, which Quoth doesn't even seem to really stop to acknowledge, but you gotta figure wounds him a little bit. I mean, if it stuck in his mind enough that from the time that he was 16 to whatever age he is now telling Chronicler this story, it bothered him. And I also got to figure that it didn't improve his opinion of Shem overall. That being said, Shem just kind of stops having this conversation and picks up his pigs and goes. Yeah, as might be expected. I mean, I got to figure that as much as he appreciated having the conversation and sharing a meal, he probably also was not appreciating the hospitality. Or lack thereof. Yeah, nobody likes to be called a liar. As Denna says, more flies with honey and all that. I mean, because Kvost's response was basically to call him either an idiot or a liar. It's notable, though, that after Denna kind of chastises him about this, he does admit that she probably could have done better than he did. There's a lot of those. There's also a little bit of, I thought that you didn't speak bumpkin. I'm kind of shocked that you're able to do this so quickly. And she's like, I have a mimic's ear. There we go, talking about Denna's ear again. (laughs) (laughs) Good callback. And it makes sense. That would be a very useful skill for her as someone who is, you know, making her living by her wits as a courtesan, as someone who is using the affections of people around her as a way to find safety in the world. I could see that being a survival skill, knowing how to mimic people's mannerisms and mirror them makes people trust people more. We go along. This is where Kvoth and Denna go back up to Barrow Hill. There's a sentence here that says, now that I was looking for them, they were impossible to miss. This goes for a lot of things in this whole story. All the seven word sentences, all of the little clues about the wind and the moon. And the Chandrian. Dun, dun. Done. And they get a little bit of discussion in about some really pretty descriptions of the surrounding area. The red and yellow autumn leaves were breathtaking. There's a lot of breathtaking, actually. Notable, Denna has asthma. We will find that out later. And I noticed that it's here that they end up formulating their plan for how to find Master Ash. And that plan is instead of to look for him, give him something to look for. Which is a fire. I don't know, every other story I've ever heard of says, don't have a fire. Things will come looking for you. Which in this case is what they want. Well, one thing to come looking for them. Not the thing that finds them. That's true. On to the next chapter, which is appropriately called Waystone. So they make their way up to the top of the highest peak and figure they'll make a camp up there and any fire they set will be something that can be seen for miles around and will also give them a great view of anything else that might be happening. So they set up their camp 
And Quoth says, we each went about our business as if we'd done this a hundred times before. And in terms of storybooks, spoilers, if you don't know the end of this, sorry, but the Dark Tower. And I'm just thinking that this kind of reminds me of the circular nature of Roland's life. Who knows? Maybe they have done this a few hundred times before. But they have an easy way about it together. Also, the next couple of paragraphs kind of feel very real. Like, I can feel how they made their stew. How realistic leaving the loaf of flatbread near the fire. And then just that feeling of breaking the wax on your cheese. And tucking the apples into the fire so that they'll cook in the coals. It just all that feels really real. And is that romanticized version of camping that is not the reality of camping. Yeah, it definitely has a tactile feel to it. I remember mostly doing chores. <laughs> you also remember camping in the Pacific Northwest, which means lots of rain. And lots of blue tarps. <laughs> That's your blue sky. It's the tarp overhead. <laughs> so when I was a kid, my family and I went out to the Mount St. Helens National Monument Forest, and we decided to stay in a state park called Sequest State Park, which is the most 90s name ever. It was named by someone who really enjoyed Sequest DSV. For those of you who didn't come up at that age, it was basically underwater Star Trek with Rob Scheider as the captain from Jaws. And it's also oddly prophetic because the first night we were there, it rained. And then we went out into the greater Mount St. Helens Monument area and went to the visitor center and it was perfectly clear out and everyone we encountered was saying, oh, can you believe how dry it's been? And then we'd ask where they were staying and they'd be staying at a little park about a quarter of a mile down the road from us. We're like, oh, okay, cool. Maybe it was just an anomaly. Nope. It was not an anomaly. The place we were staying was living in a permanent rain cloud. Like, it just was a really intensely localized weather system that only dumped rain there. So my brother and I were staying on the same campsite as my parents. We had a tent, and then mom, dad, and my sister had a tent. And mom and dad and my sister's tent was on sort of the more upward slope Ours was at the bottom of a little depression, and not even like a big one. It was just like, a, if you're looking at the grade, maybe it's a few inches. But it was still enough that we got flooded out of our tent. And so we had to take all of our stuff out and then cram it into the tent with the rest of the family. <laughs> and that was the trip that convinced mom and dad that, screw this, we're getting a camper. <laughs> and they haven't looked back since. And it turned out to be a really good decision for them because even now they have their camper trailer and were able to go and visit your sister and effectively quarantine in their camper before our little nibbling came. That's right. It's just been kind of part of their life now. They're able to pick up and go and explore the country. And especially as they've entered retirement, I think they're really looking forward to being able to go on more of these long trips and just see where the spirit takes them. Anyway, that's why I don't go camping. So your experience was not the same 
as Quoth and Dennis. Although I actually kind of was. They did get a share of rain here. That's true. We get complaints about the strawberry wine or lack thereof. Denna even chides Quoth, that's what you get for not listening to a tinker on the road. Which is kind of what I said. We get our next instance of blue flame. Blue flame? When Denna sees a blue flame out in the distance. And Quoth kind of has the same thought process that I had. Okay, so I don't want to pry, but how does your patron signal you? Denna responds that no, it's nothing to do with blue fire. I know what you're thinking. That would be altogether too sinister, even for him. Which implies that she is well aware that he is a sinister presence. It's been pretty well implied at this point. Yes, but she's self-aware. More than we can say for Quoth. So we go along, and Quoth does this kind of infuriating Socratic method of trying to get Denna to arrive at the same conclusions that he has arrived at by this point. So he asks, but why would the Chandrian attack the wedding? He's definitely trying to lead the witness here. That is the Socratic method, and it's also known as being an utter ashhole. People ask, why was Socrates given the hemlock poison at Athens? Was it really because he corrupted the youth? No, it's because he answered every single question with a question, and people found that really obnoxious. You either really love that style of teaching, or you really, really don't love that style of teaching. And I get the impression that you really don't like that style of teaching. You know... I don't mind it as a style of teaching, but as a style of actually engaging with a peer, it's a little bit less useful. I gotcha. So Denna calls him out on his bullshirt. And says, just get to the point. So finally he cuts to the chase and says, they're trying to basically wipe out knowledge of themselves. Since everyone who knew the secret would be at the wedding, the Chandrian can come and kill everyone who knows anything and either destroy or steal whatever it is. Clean sweep. Quoth kind of resents, once again, the fact that Denna is really quick at thinking about things like this. In this particular case, he had come to a lesser conclusion. So Quoth lets her take the uh, first sleep and he takes the first watch. It's here that he first has the question of, I wonder if my friends are worried about me. My friends and my teachers. Do they even care that I've been gone for an entire day and they have no idea? Maybe I should have left a note. <laughs> right? Yay for a callback to, and that's why you always leave a note. He's missed Arwill and the Medica. He's missed lectures. He hasn't shown up at the Aeolian or any of his usual haunts. It's been a day. This is when people get reported missing. So just as they're about to change watch. So before we actually move away from the conversation of the Chandrian, this is a place where a lot of people have a lot of theories and a lot of either confirmed theories or just kind of opened the door theories. While Foth bothers to say that he was kind of miffed about the fact that Denna was the one that came to this more correct sounding conclusion. He also says, or at least in his head, he says, oh my god, they killed my entire troop the same way they killed this entire 
wedding party and all the guests and just this whole idea of that the knowledge is what they're trying to kill like this calls back to how just saying their names is enough to summon them and apparently it's saying their names over and over again and in this case mothin bragging constantly over and over again about this thing that he found which almost assuredly has something to do with the chandrian no matter if my memory of what it actually is is correct or not so denna's waking implies that it was not an easy sleep for her she apparently suffers from nightmares quite a bit and understandably does not want to talk about those so in a way this more solidifies to me or confirms a little bit of one of my theories that Kvothe and she are on very similar paths. It is very possible that she was also a survivor of something terrible that the Chandrian did. Her reaction to Kvothe thinking that it was the Chandrian when they first arrived at Mothin's farm is pretty similar to his. And I also think that this illustrates that as much as Kvothe likes to think that he's close to her, that there is still a part of her that he doesn't know yet, that she doesn't trust him with yet, and that she is justifiably keeping him still at something of an arm's distance. Because even as he seems pleasant enough, it's pretty clear that she's met plenty of people who have seemed pleasant enough, who, on getting to know them better, weren't nearly so kind and pleasant. And that's a little reminder that it's not enough to be just pleasant and nice. You have to understand that a lot of people who have been hurt are understandably wary around other people and you have to earn their trust and it takes time and effort and occasional disappointment. You have to be okay with that. I think that's something that Kvothe maybe could do with learning. At the same time, she's still being kind of playful and sweet to him. He lets her keep the blanket and she calls him a gentleman. And while he was trying to think of a clever response, he fell asleep. Which, again, I do think that a lot of this is kind of cute when you look at it as those little butterfly moments, those little sweet vignettes. So partway through Denna's watch, she kind of leans over and wakes him up, and he thinks, all in all, this was a pleasant way to wake up. I mean, I do like waking up next to your face, so I can see where he's coming from there. So, would it have distracted you in about 18 different ways when we were first dating if I had just kind of put my finger across your mouth? Yeah. <laughs> At the same time that this is kind of cute, this is also kind of a frightening event. Yeah, because while the first thing he sees may be the lovely face of Denna, the first thing he hears is a deep rumble that echoes in his chest. <laughs> True, though the first thing he says is, it's just the wind. Oops. Nope. So, not knowing what to expect, they decide their best bet is to try and clamber up on top of the Arch of Greystones, which she seems to do a lot better at than he does. <laughs> well, to be fair, he lifts her up there. Yeah, that's true. And I'm always trying to figure out what the full scale of these is. Possibly two people high? <laughs> Yeah, so probably about 10 feet tall, thereabouts. Maybe 11 or 12. Yeah. And so he lifts her up, 
And then he's like, I'm going to climb up. And then he realizes that's a dumb idea. We get another one of those. If this had been a story, I would have gotten up there in the most heroic way possible. Instead, I ran at the stone, banged my knee, got all torn up, and then eventually Dina clawed her hand into my hair and we scrambled me up. It's like grabbing him by the scruff of his neck. <laughs> no, it's by his hair. That seems painful. It reminds me of like a cat being dragged around by the scruff or something like that. Demeaning and demoralizing, in other words. And then after he gets up on top of the graystone, the wind fanned the fire and he could see it was a huge lizard that's about six feet at the shoulder and it was bigger than the graystone. And there was a burst of blue flame and it's a dragon. Dun, dun, dun. And that's where we're going to leave off, even though the next little interlude is uh, Quoth or Coat or whoever giving Chronicler the opportunity to say, well, actually, before we leave the story, I do want to say I noticed one thing about Denna and her sleeping. While she slept, the clouds covered the moon. And once she awoke, while Quoth slept, the moon came out. Interesting. Very interesting. To continue our analogy of Denna as the moon. And so with that, it's time for us to share our Fronimos of the Week. This time it's your turn. Who you got? So we have three options. And it's not Quoth. It's never Quoth. I'm not going to choose Quoth unless Quoth is the only speaking part. And even then, I might take an audible. Sorry, anyone who thinks that Quoth is a genius. I'm pretty sure that at this point, we have made it clear that neither of us believes that. Accurate. Now, I was gonna try to shoehorn Shem as being the person who was our Fernemos, and I can think of a few ways that that would work. However, as we reviewed the section, Denna kind of jumped out as having some practical wisdom of her own. So I'm going to choose Denna. Yeah, I'll buy it. Denna knows a lot of things that Quoth does not, but she doesn't lord it over him. Now, there's a couple of things. In certain societies, in certain social interactions, or with certain men, for a woman to point out that they are smarter than the men that they are with is dangerous. Can be a death sentence, even. So that might be a learned response. Even if she does not believe that Quoth himself would be hurtful, like physically, or try to shame her into believing that she is not as smart as she actually is, or whatnot. So she kind of laughs off most of it. But she is smarter than Quoth. She has knowledge that may come from the fact that I think she's a little older than Quoth. It may be that she just is more well-traveled and knows more. And while Quoth knows a lot from having been in an Edema Rue, while he knows a lot from having gone to the university, he does not have intellectual curiosity and we have established this. Denna can read people very well. She can come to conclusions that are beyond the surface level conclusions that Quoth does. 
she's even good at that manipulation that is almost a defense mechanism. But she also, I think, has some practical wisdom in not trying to shame other people for their lack of knowledge. Yeah, she's definitely got the more inquisitive mind and the keener mind, I think, despite not having his formal training, as far as we know. But I'd say that even being educated does not necessarily mean that you are smart, nor does it mean at all that you are smarter than people who are not properly educated. There's a lot of things that my educated self cannot do that other people definitely can do. There are a lot of ways that a lot of, quote, uneducated people are way smarter than I am. I remember when we got together, I had a bachelor's degree and you didn't. You were always smarter than me. There has never been a time when you have not been smarter than me. I don't know. I think that there are different ways that each of us are smart and smarter than one another. I'm constantly asking you to help me with things like spelling, vocabulary, history, these things that I don't retain. The things that I do retain are more technical in nature and more math-oriented or science. And as I say, you've been smarter than me for a long time. I, I appreciate that. For those of you who can't see me because this is a podcast, I have the Kermit the Frog kind of like put upon flat lipped face thing going on right now. Hoomph. Because I do not agree with Will that I am smarter than him. I think that we have different knowledge sets. Hoomph. Hoomph. But for real, though, you're smarter than me. I love you. Let's continue on. <laughs> Excellent. I think that that is probably enough on Denna for this section. So let us go on to our interesting fact. All right. So it may come as a shock to our listeners, but I snore at night. Like, badly. And, uh, you know, it shocked me too. If my snoring was so bad, you'd think I could hear it, right? I mean, I've actually had that thought process when you've woken me up because I snore and I'm like, I should be able to hear myself snore. Yeah. So it turns out there's actually a couple of reasons we can't and they work together. So the first thing is that most people's brains naturally disengage a number of sensory connections while they sleep so that they aren't waking up to every single bit of external stimuli, whether it's visual, auditory, or by touch. That explains why when our cats are going everywhere in the house. You don't wake up, even though I am usually still awake at that time and I can hear Leela just with a mousy in her mouth trying to meow around it. And you're just like. Yep. Now, some things will make it through, such as jostling or the sound of your name. Jostling? Really? Severe, depending on, <laughs> depending on the person. Maybe you're just so used to me jostling you to wake you up to make you stop snoring that you've just stopped registering it. That may be possible. Anyway, go on. 
But some things will make it through, such as jostling or the sound of your name, but anything predictable or gentle will simply breeze on by. Notably, people with sleep disorders may find that their brain sets a lower threshold for arousal or fails to disengage the sensory connection altogether. This isn't trying to say this is everyone. Some people, they have brains that don't work this way. But on average. Secondly, the region of the brain where the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, and occipital lobe meets possesses the ability to suppress certain sensory inputs. So, for instance, this is why you can't tickle yourself. Anytime you try to tickle yourself, this region tells the rest of your body to expect the tickling, and so your body recognizes that and then shuts it all down. And it does the same thing for your snoring. It tells the rest of your brain that this is to be expected, and thus your brain disengages that particular sensory input and goes about its business. Notably, it doesn't do this for your partner's snoring, so you'll just have to either roll them over or wear your plugs. can verify that it doesn't help your partner. Yeah, there are times where you tell me I'm snoring and I'm like, I have no clue what you're talking about. I can't hear it. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. What do you say to that? Well, okay, so full disclosure, I do find it interesting. However, you may still be up for punishment right now. And there's a reason. <gasps> Last week... I was going to engage you in a conversation about Mondegreens because the difference between hearing Barrow Rill and Barrow Hill reminded me of people mishearing lyrics. And I didn't use that as an interesting fact. I don't know why. I probably should have. But you looked over and you're just like, shut up, I was going to talk about that next week. And yet. And yet. All right, so... So you better also give me that interesting fact, or I am going to make you eat some cherries. All right, so mondegreens are when people mishear lyrics or lines of poetry, really any sort of spoken line. The term originally appeared in a 1954 essay for Harper's Magazine, in which... American writer Sylvia Wright describes when she was a child, her mother used to read to her from Percy's Reliques, and one of the favorite poems began, Ye highlands and ye lowlands, O where hae ye been? They have slain the Earl of Moray and Lady Mondegreen. So she hears Lady Mondegreen, but the actual line was, And laid him on the green, which uh, obviously is a little bit different. Other famous examples of this are in uh, Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, the lyric, excuse me while I kiss the sky, it's oftentimes heard as, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Or in uh, the classic Creedence Clearwater Revival song, Bad Moon Rising, many people have heard instead of, there's a bad moon on the rise, there's a bathroom on the right. <laughs> <laughs> so, the interesting thing about this is they're more likely to notice what they expect than things not part of their everyday experience, which is basically a form of confirmation bias. So one may mistake an unfamiliar stimulus for a familiar and more plausible version. So if a lyric uses words or phrases that the listener is unfamiliar with, they're more likely to mishear them as something that they recognize. The creation may be driven in part by cognitive dissonance as the listener finds it psychologically uncomfortable to listen to a song and not make out the words. 
Stephen Connor suggests that mondegreens are the result of the brain's constant attempts to make sense of the world by making assumptions to fill in the gaps when it cannot clearly determine what it is hearing. Connor sees mondegreens as the wrenchings of nonsense into sense. This dissonance will be most acute when the lyrics are in a language the listener is fluent in. So, for example, in the early example that we started with that Percy thing, notice that it was spoken with a very thick Highland brogue, which may be hard to understand for someone who is not from Scotland. I mean, note that many people from England have a very hard time with a Scottish accent and find it virtually unintelligible. And so, laid him on the green quickly becomes Lady Mondegreen, because that kind of makes sense. Well, it also implies that yet another person died. They were already primed to expect it, though. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Credence example, the bathroom on the right, they're singing with kind of a Cajun affect which may be harder to understand to someone who's familiar with a more Midwestern American accent. Thank you. You're welcome. And so that is how that happens with Barrow Hill and Barrow Rill. Exactly. So, does that interest you? The first one definitely, definitely interested me. The second one I actually knew about, but I was going to talk about. And then you're like, shut up! So, you did avoid your cherries. Oh, good. I'm glad for that. Thank you for your mercy. You are welcome, sir. I'm glad I could at least make you laugh. You did. All right. So now it's time for us to share our seven words. What are your seven words from the book? After Denna points out that, in fact, the feral hog was a domesticated pig, Quoth says, Merciful Telu. I feel like an idiot. He should get used to that feeling. Especially around people who are smarter than him. He's been the smartest kid in the room for too long. <laughs> yes. Yes, he has. That's a good one. Thank you. What are your seven words from life? These are words that you spoke to me this morning. As they so often are, things that we talked about this morning. You said, Why must you act like a butt? <laughs> like a butt <laughs> oh my god why <sighs> it's because usually when i'm being a butt i'm able to elicit that reaction <laughs> and i love making you laugh <laughs> I'm not going to describe the particular bit of butt being in question because I don't wish to get in further trouble. He would. Other than to say that I came up with a rather vulgar sounding nickname for our kitten. But you accuse me of having made it up and I did not. You just are mishearing me constantly lately. I'm sorry. But this was at least amusing. He was not. In fact, sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. My remorse is limited in this case. <laughs> but at any rate, it was something that really made me smile a lot. And then your reaction to when I picked that as my seven words also made me smile a lot. And, I mean, come on. How could I not? 
<sighs> Fair enough. And with that, I have to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 75 through 77 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of human ecology. It will very likely be a rather long episode because it's a very long third chapter, but the first two are very, very short, so sorry. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring together. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and you have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, including our new backcountry bonus pod that will be coming out, or maybe just came out, depending on when this thing goes live, on the autumnal equinox, and other exciting items. I am toying with the idea of doing some of these little promotional items on there and I'd really like to know if there's anything that you'd like to see us create for you. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. it's not even useful to cut an apple without a few strokes of it. Sorry, I'm not going to use the word strokes. Uh, <laughs> what? None. We talked about tot waffles earlier. I'm not going to... Nope.